really thankful to be here, to be back with you guys this evening. I love being at SMC. I've had the chance, I think, twice in the past to speak, but it's been a a bit, uh, been a minute, and uh, I just love the energy. I love seeing what God's doing in your lives. I love the little one-offs I get to have with you, whether it's in the elevator that stops on every single floor on the way to our floor or just in the hallways, and uh, just love seeing God move and shape lives that will not only affect a life well-lived on this earth, but all of eternity, that we'll celebrate what God does here even tonight for all of eternity. Uh, I mentioned, uh, I introduced Caleb this morning that I brought with me, also brought uh, two of my friends, uh, Ben Fasano's here. Ben is the young adults pastor at Harvest Church and just getting some good time with him this weekend or as we're here. And then Jamie Trussell. Jamie's the executive director of Downline Ministries where I still serve as the president, and uh, Jamie's real excited to be here. We have a chance to um, be a part of the senior workshop in the morning, so we look forward to sharing a little bit more about what God's doing in Memphis through Downline with you guys then. Well, uh, I wanted to jump right in tonight. The passage I'm going to be in is Luke chapter 10. If you have a Bible or a device with a Bible on it and uh, you want to turn there, just be heading to Luke 10. And uh, this is a parable. Uh, Jesus is going to tell a story. And I love, I love stories. I love parables. Uh, parables help us to understand weighty theological truths in a very simple, understandable manner. Matter of fact, that's why Jesus told parables. His disciples asked him in Matthew 13, why are you telling parables? Why are you teaching in this fashion? He said to make clear the mystery of the gospel to the Gentiles. They don't have the law. They don't have the prophets. They don't have all this context for understanding the weighty theological truth of we are dead in our trespasses and sins and Christ has come to give us life. Like that's, that's weighty theologically in a polytheistic culture. Parables to make it simple where uh, even a child can understand deep truths. And so I love the parables. We're going to be in one tonight. Now I want to say this just sentence is a segue from this morning into this parable, which I hope really illustrates uh, the teaching from this morning and just really illustrates the gospel The statement I want to make very clearly is kind of coming out of the culminating statement of this morning's teaching is that uh, that but God was the the two greatest words in your New Testament because of where they are. I mean, on the heels of those three verses that make clear that we are dead, darkened, disobedient, doomed, but God just, just breathes hope and life and joy and peace into this moment of, of horror. And, uh, and what follows that but God is that he made us alive. If you're a believer, he's made you alive with Christ. It is by grace through faith you have, you've been saved. It says it's the gift of God. He's made you alive in Christ, which means this. If you trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you receive what he accomplished in his death on the cross. Remember? took our place in judgment. He paid the wages of our sin, which were death. We receive what he accomplished, the forgiveness of sins. But you also receive, praise God, you also receive what he accomplished in his resurrection, which is life, new life. It's that color TV coming on, boom. You're not, you, you don't just get a, a clean slate to go dirty up again. You get a new life, the life of Christ literally imparted to you. He literally becomes alive in you. That's why Christians are a little different. The life of God is alive in them. Okay, now, with that being said, Luke chapter 10, 
Jesus is going to bring this to life in what I hope will be an unforgettable way this evening. Matter of fact, uh, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, which is true. Lord, if we, if we know nothing else, we need to know that this word speaks the truth. It tells the great mystery of, of who you are and who we are and what you have done for us. And God, tonight as we walk through the parable, this particular parable of the Good Samaritan, uh, which lays bare uh, man's problem and your lavish love and compassion in the solution, I pray that you would do a supernatural, miraculous recovery work tonight, that you'd literally be in this place, presence heavy, on a rescue mission after your people, after your children. We offer this time up. We invite you to move just as you spoke when your spirit hovered over the deep and you created this world. God, I pray that your word speaks tonight and your spirit that hovers in this place brings new life. I'd ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Lord Jesus, you must increase and I must decrease. Amen. Okay, Luke chapter 10. Here we go. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, him is Jesus in context, to the test. So we see the motive of the question that's about to be asked. Uh, a lawyer, this guy that uh, your Bible might say a scribe, he's, he's an expert in the law. He wants to test Jesus's knowledge. What do you think? Good move, bad move? <laughs> Rookie mistake. Now, uh, who does he think the standard of knowledge of the law is? If he's going to test Jesus, what do you think? He thinks he's the standard. And, and, and Jesus is, I mean, frankly, Jesus is a little bit of a celebrity rabbi at this point. He's a polarizing young rabbi. He's the most polarizing figure of his day. I mean, he's got everything from folks saying that he's the Messiah, the promised one, promised all the way back in Genesis 3, anticipated all the way throughout the Old Testament. He has come. He's got others saying he's a demon-possessed Samaritan. I mean, that's A to Z. So when he came through town, crowds gathered wanted to hear what he had to say. Well, this guy stands up to put him to the test. Let's see what this celebrity young rabbi knows. And he says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Seems like an innocent enough question, but we already saw his motive. He wants to test. He wants to see if Jesus knows the answer. He's not really looking for truth. And Jesus responds to him that the, the rabbinical way to respond to a question was with a question. So this is just cultural custom right here. Jesus is a good Jew, and he responds with the question, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Like Jesus knows this guy's an expert on law. He spends his whole life studying the law. He knows the guy knows the answer to the question. He's not really going to play his game. So he says, you know what the law says? What does it say? How do you read it? Well, he does know the law. Verse 27, he answers by quoting, by the way, Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. He knows the law really well. He answers, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Now, uh, verse 28, Jesus says to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. <laughs> now, if, you don't, if you're not into the context, you might miss kind of the, the sarcasm or the smugness in Jesus' response. This guy says, what do, I, what do you have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what's the law say? 
Uh, he knows the motive of his heart is wicked. The guy says, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. By the way, can anyone do that? Like, let's just, like, <clears throat> bear with me. Can anyone love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength perfectly all the time? Because if that indeed is the standard, if that's what it takes to be counted righteous before God, that you've got to love him with your whole mind, heart, soul, strength, perfectly all the time, is anyone going to inherit eternal life? Any hands? It's hard to see with the glare, but if somebody next to you has their hand raised, you elbow them, get it down. That's not us. Hey, you don't take that, you don't take that what's behind that door. No chance. I mean, we don't even need to worry about what it means to love our neighbors ourselves. Nobody can love God perfectly all the time. And, and certainly I can't love my neighbor perfectly all the time. I, I don't know, by the way, if you're thinking, well, well, what does a neighbor extend to? Who cares? Let's say it goes as far as my wife. Don't you think my wife would at least be included in, in whatever boundary you put around our neighbor? I think so. Do I love my sweet, precious, amazing bride perfectly all the time? I'm glad she's not here to answer that. Okay? Boy. I, uh, no, no, I, I wish I did. She deserves it. I love her, but I don't love her perfectly. I love her incredibly imperfectly every single day and desperately need her grace. I can't do these things. And Jesus' response to him was, hey, just do that and you're good. Do you see it now? It's like, hey, anybody want to try that? All right, there's a crowd listening, by the way. This guy wanted a show. He's got one. He just challenged Jesus. That didn't go well. And now he's kind of, you know, put on blast. And he's sitting here going, oh, what do I do with that? He's, he's backpedaling a little bit. And it says in verse 29, by the way, you know what he should do right now? It'd be tough. It'd involve a lot of humility. It'd involve brokenness. It'd involve the undoing of a man that leads to salvation but he should right now repent. He should right now say publicly, even in all of his pharisaical, legalistic, religious knowledge and righteousness, he should say, Jesus, I can't do that, and nobody can. So what is a sinner like me supposed to do? But he doesn't do that. Verse 29, but he, desiring to justify himself. Can I tell you what? That's man's whole problem right there. Man does not want to be rescued out of his spiritual, spiritually dead state. He wants to justify himself. He wants to say, oh, come on. I'm not that bad. I'm deserving enough. There's a lot of good mixed into my chili. I think at the end of the day, uh, when it's all balanced out, I'm going to be okay. Uh, I'm a good guy down deep. I got a good heart. Heart's in the right place. I mean, however we do it, we, you know what that's called, by the way? That's a lie. Who's the author of lies? Satan, the prince of this world, leading you like you lead a horse by the bit, leading you down that river, whispering lies in your ear, just like he did to Eve, that you might believe that you can save yourself. That's our pride. Pride led to and leads to the fall again and again and again. Well, this guy desires to justify himself, and he said to Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? That's the wrong question. 
but Jesus is going to give you the right answer. He says, well, who's my neighbor? If I've got to love, I mean, he assumes, well, yeah, of course I love God with my heart, soul, mind, and strength. You know, I'm a, I'm a uh, scribe. I'm an expert. I spend my life studying the law. Who's my neighbor? Who exactly do I have to love perfectly all the time? Well, Jesus replies with, once upon a time. When Jesus does this, you're in trouble, all right? He goes story mode right here, and he says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, now J- Jerusalem is actually a little bit south of Jericho, but in elevation, in elevation, it's, uh, you go down from Jerusalem, which is on the heights, to Jericho. And so there's a man going down. Now, I just read that and got zero reaction from you guys, and that's okay. Y'all are 21st century Americans. In the context in which Jesus is telling the parable, when you start with a man's going from Jerusalem to Jericho, the crowd goes, (gasps) because they know that's not good. Like, in fact, it had a designated title. That pathway, which I've been on uh, just as a tourist, that path is called the path of blood. It was the place, it's kind of a desert road that goes uh, down this mountain to Jericho, and, and, and basically it's where all the bad guys hung out. It's where you had thieves and criminals and outlaws and pirates, and it was dangerous. You didn't go at night. You certainly didn't go by yourself. It was the path of blood. That's where guys got mugged and robbed and bad stuff happened. I don't know what the most dangerous place in your town, if you live in a town where there's kind of an area where you're like, hey, don't go there. This was that area. So Jesus starts the story saying, we're on the path of blood. There's a dude going down, it, and you're going, oh, no. And it says, and he fell among robbers. Well, you're not surprised right here. That's what happens on the path of blood. They stripped him, they beat him, and they departed, leaving him half dead. You got the picture? Man going down the path of blood. He's jumped, he's mugged, he's kicked, he's beaten, he's robbed, and he's left for dead. Well, you would probably say that man has no hope. It seems that way until verse 31. Now, by chance... A priest was going down that road. You're in the crowd. You're going, oh, my gosh. All right. It was probably dumb to be on the path of blood by himself. Should have known better. In the story, the guy's getting what he's there. But, hey, there's hope. God's providence. You got to look. There's a priest. Now, how is a priest on the road? Well, a priest had a little bit of King's X. It was superstition that you were not to mug a priest. <laughs> uh, you couldn't rob a priest or it was some, uh, some, some bad juju on your life. And so they left them alone. And so the priest is able to travel the path of blood, and sure enough, here comes one. We got hope for our dude. And when he saw him, when the priest saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, that's if you hadn't heard this story, that's an unexpected turn. Like, wait a minute, what kind of priest is that? The priest won't help our man. The priest's not going to help him. I mean, that's terrible. Now, only thing I'll say, hypothetically, Uh, easy to think bad priest, maybe it is a bad priest, but I'll say this, the priest sees a dude who just looks to be a dead guy on the path of blood, which is not that surprising. And the priest is probably going, man, that's too bad. (laughs) Shouldn't have been here. Hate that that happened. The priest is coming out of Jerusalem where you are cleansed for your service in the temple on his way to Jericho where his post is to serve. Should he even go over and touch this dead body, he'll be unclean can't serve, has to go back into Jerusalem, about a week's worth, eight days of ceremonial cleansing before he can go back out to Jericho. So maybe the priest is going, I wish I could do something, but there's people that are alive that need my priestly duties. So he passes by. You're in the crowd, you're going, ah, there goes all hope. Well, 
Not quite. It says, so likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him. There's hope again. You know what a Levite is? A Levite's a priest in training. A Levite is actually one who is um, uh, given the priestly uh, blessing of training to be a priest, and yet they don't have the ritual cleansing requirements as of yet. Perfect. This is the guy that can help. Unbelievable. But look here. He passed him by on the other side. Ah! First the priest, now the Levite. What's this guy doing? What's his excuse? By the way, I've read this story and heard it so many times in my life. I just generally thought, what a bad dude. Like, God couldn't even help the guy. You know what God hit me with one day? I'm trying to figure out what the Levite's doing. One day it hit me, how many times am I frustrated when I've got a schedule and I'm on a mission to accomplish my day and I'm just even interrupted by someone in need? They just, someone needs to talk. Someone needs some help. That's going to completely disrupt my day. That's going to mess up my next 30 minutes, two hours, half a day. And, and how often do I ignore it, uh, make up some reason why I can't be of help, or just have bitterness in my spirit and frustration? God just hit me with that one day like, who am I to point a finger at the Levite? I got three fingers pointing back at me. So I don't know. I don't know what his deal was. Maybe he had a big day planned. Maybe he had a schedule. Hey, he's on the path of blood and there's a dead guy. Maybe he's just scared. I don't know. But he did what I've done a thousand times. He passed him by. Verse 33, but infuses the text with hope. What do you mean? There can't be hope after a priest and a Levite, but a Samaritan. Yet again, no reaction from the crowd. Now, <laughs> the crowd he's speaking to, you're looking around for a stone right now. Because generally in a story, if we get to it, if it's a triadic story, if the third guy comes up, oftentimes that's going to be the hero. And if we're about to make a hero out of a Samaritan, those are fighting words. See, as a Jew, hated the Samaritans. Goes back a little bit, very briefly, 722, when the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and took them into captivity. And um, uh, they took the land. The Jews in the south, who were a little bit self-righteous, looked up and said, hey, you shall not intermarry with the pagans. You should not worship their gods. And yet that's exactly what the remnant left in northern Israel did. And so in the, in the south, they wrote them off. And they said, you're half-breeds, you're worse than pagans, you're Samaritans. Because the area was called Samaria. Well, uh, Babylon in 586 would take the southern kingdom into captivity for 70 years. And under uh, Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, that part of history, uh, Artaxerxes' decree 445, when, uh, when they are uh, brought back to the land, the Samaritans come down to help them rebuild the temple. And they say, uh-uh, you're not coming down and helping us. You guys have bowed a knee to a false god. And that schism was real deep. So deep that you remember the guy I told you about this morning, Antiochus Epiphanes? And the Greek, see the Babylonians conquered the Assyrians. The Greeks conquered the Babylonians. Actually, the Persians Conquered the Babylonians, then the Greeks. So now we're the Greeks, 195. Antiochus Epiphanes, remember the crazy guy? Well, when he was trying to take out Jerusalem, or when he did take it out, he had to go through the northern kingdom, through Samaria. And did they put up a fight? They parted the sea, and they said, right down there, go get them. So they hate each other so badly that by the New Testament, Jesus' day, John 4, I think some of you ladies heard about in your women's workshop from what I heard. John 4, do you remember the woman at the well 
Jesus is speaking to her, and she literally stops one question and says, wait a minute, what's going on here? Uh, I'm a Samaritan, and you're a Jew. We don't speak to each other. Why are you talking to me? And uh, John chapter 8, when they really wanted to offend Jesus, as I mentioned earlier, what they called him was a demon-possessed Samaritan. That's as low as they could go. So just get that there was pure hatred between Jew and Samaritan. And the third character here is a Samaritan. And it says, as he journeyed, it came to where our man was. Now, priests has passed him by, Levites passed him by, here's the Samaritan. And when he saw him, it says, he had compassion. You see that word? I don't know if you've got a pen in your hand, but if you do, underline that word, compassion. He saw him, he had compassion. So something happened in his belly to, a, to an extent that was strong enough. It obviously didn't happen in the priest's belly. It didn't stop the priest. It didn't stop the Levi. It stopped this man in his tracks. In verse 34, he went to him. He bound up his wounds. I don't, I don't think he's got a little first aid kit with him. I think he tore his clothes off his body and used them to wrap the wounds of the, of the man laying dead on the side of the road. Poured oil and wine on him to cleanse, cleanse the wounds. Those were just things he would have. Then he set him on his own animal. By the way, it's a 17-mile journey, path of blood, Jerusalem to Jericho. He puts the man on his own animal, which means what? Which means now he's walking. And he brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. I mean, this guy's not doing the bare minimum. I mean, this guy has completely emptied himself for the sake of this dude that was half dead, as the text describes him. And then verse 35 is the kicker. The next day, I don't know, I can't remember the last time I inconvenienced myself for someone, some stranger in need, so strongly that it was a two-day project. Like completely unintentional, interrupted my day unexpectedly, and I'm still on it a day later. <laughs> he took out two denarii, so now the guy's costing him money. He gave him to the innkeeper, and he said, take care of him, and whatever you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. Is this guy crazy? He literally just gave him a blank check. He said, hey, take care of him. Whatever that cost, I'll pay it. Blank check makes himself vulnerable. He can be totally taken advantage of right here by one who's his enemy. And I'll repay when I come back. And then Jesus says, verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robber? Boy, that's the softball of the century right there, isn't it? In verse 37, he said, the one who showed him mercy. He wasn't going to say the S word, right? Couldn't say Samaritan out loud. But he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now, I want to say this. Um, oftentimes when you read the parable, the, the natural tendency is to find yourself in the story. You've probably already done that. You kind of start relating to characters. You've probably related in your mind to a time when you were a good Samaritan. You're probably like, I, I feel really good about the time that I helped that guy out. Reading this makes me glad that I did that. Or you might feel guilty about the time or times that you haven't, and you've, you're relating to the priest or the Levite when you've passed someone by, and you're kind of feeling some guilt or some shame. Or maybe from this morning through the day, you're, you're feeling like the, the scribe who wants to justify himself, and that's where you are. But I want to tell you, the beauty of this parable is not understood when you figure out which character points to you. The beauty and majesty of this parable is when you see which character points to Christ. Because there is one character in this story who made himself naked that another man may be clothed. There's one who made himself weak that another man may be healed. There's one who made himself vulnerable 
that another man may be provided for. There's one who gave of every resource he had to save a life in need. Jesus is the ultimate good Samaritan. And Jesus, we're not meant to miss that. That's not you and I, that's him. And the question that then lingers is, if Jesus is the good Samaritan, and he is, and only he is, then where are you and I exactly in this story? If he's Jesus, if that's not me, where am I? And I'll tell you, it's a character that we quickly passed over. He's in verse 30. It's the guy that fell among robbers, was beaten, and left for dead. Now, you probably didn't pass over that guy and think, all right, here's my guy. Let me see how I do. Because this guy has no chance of being the hero, and we all want to be the hero. But I want to tell you this, that's you and that's me, spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. And I want to tell you what, Jesus saw you there. You didn't see yourself there. That's not how you think of yourself. That's not how I think of myself. But that's how Jesus sees you, and yet he is the ultimate good high priest, does not pass you by. He can't because something happens inside of him. He feels something for you. The word compassion is the word splagnizomai in the Greek, I love it. It means when your innards burst out of your body. How about that? Jesus saw you in your spiritual deadness, his insides burst out. That's what he felt. That's the feeling that caused the Son of God to not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but to make himself nothing. Taking on the very nature of a servant, being found in human appearance, and being found in the likeness of man, humbling himself and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is some kind of feeling right there. That's my. And he came for us, and he cared for us, and he paid for us, and he redeemed us, and he said, I'm coming back for you. Amen? Jesus is the Good Samaritan. Now, let me just make a couple points off of this parable. First is, if that's true, and it is, this changes a couple things in my mind from, from what we generally stereotypically think in our day and age, in our culture, and the Christianity uh, coin of our day. It changes what it means to follow Christ. It, it, at the very core, essential, even to be a Christian. It changes it. If Jesus is the ultimate good Samaritan, and he is, and if his innards burst forth for the man in his spiritual deadness, if that's the spiritual application, if that's the, what the story's meant to illuminate for us to answer the man's question about how to save himself, you can't. But Jesus came to do for you what you can't do for yourself. Then what is it to be a Christian, to be a follower of Christ? Well, all of a sudden it comes into focus. It's, it can't be measured in vertical devotion. Can't, you, you can't just me measure your Christianity merely in quiet times and verse memory. I mean, clearly, all of a sudden, it is having compassion for the one who's spiritually dead, right where you were, seeing him as Christ sees him, feeling about him as Christ feels about him, and loving him as Christ has loved you. 
All of a sudden, Christianity isn't some rote, religious, works righteous discipline. It's a love relationship with a Savior who, in the moment he reconciled you, gave you a ministry of reconciliation. And that ministry is your greatest privilege. It's your heartbeat because his heart is yours. I don't know. I can't. I don't want to cheapen by any means the theological weight of splagnitzomai. I'm sure that I've never felt what Jesus feels when he sees you spiritually dead. I do know that when I was 16 years old, uh, my father got brain cancer. I have two sisters, one on each side. I'm in the middle, and Dad and I are best friends. And so he told us one night that he, he just had a few months to live. It was the hardest night of my life. I was 16, and the next three months passed, and he deteriorated physically just like the doctor said that he would. And uh, one day I'm in school, and uh, I get a call, and they said, hey, uh, your mom's friend, Miss Faber, she's here to pick you up and take you home. And I kind of knew what was probably going on. I just had this just lump in my chest, and I got in her car, and it was about a seven-minute drive uh, from the school to um, where I grew up. And, man, I remember vividly, I was sitting on the edge of the seat. Like I never even took my backpack off. My hand was on the door handle the entire way home. Like when she pulled in the driveway, before she stopped, I flung the door open and I sprinted into the house. Somewhere along the way, I chunked my bag down. I rounded the banister. I was up the stairs to my dad's bedroom and I got there just in time. I got there, I'd never been with a man when he was dying, and dad was really struggling to get any air in his lungs. My mother was there holding his hand, my younger sister, we were waiting on my older sister, and I just, I lunged up to his bedside, and I stood there for a minute, and I saw him, and I began to weep, and I had a few moments, and I didn't know what the protocol here was. Our pastor was there too, but I said, hey, would it be okay if I just have a few moments with dad? Everybody left, and I just had just me and dad. I mean, I don't know how to communicate to you what I felt. But it was, the, it was the, the greatest, deepest mixture of gratitude and love and friendship and compassion and devotion. It was all that. And I just wanted, wanted to give it to him. I said, Dad... And through tears, I just told him how I felt about him. The, be- the best that words can do, I did. Can I tell you what? Jesus certainly didn't come in the incarnation. He, didn't, he came as a babe in a manger. He didn't, he didn't come via misfavor from heaven to earth. But I tell you this, had he, he would have been on the edge of his seat, hand on the door handle, all the way seeing us in our spiritual condition bankrupt before God, having bought into the lies of a deceiver, whispered to us, floating down a stream, dead, darkened, disobedient, and doomed. And I mean, he couldn't wait to fling the door open and pour himself out as an atoning sacrifice for our sin to the point of death on a cross. What does it mean to follow Christ? That's how we're to live. 
If you're like me, you go, man, I, I can't live like that. And I'd say to you, I, I, I can't either. But, but we don't manufacture that. When you receive Christ, he comes alive in you. John 14, he told his followers, I'm going to the Father, and it's going to be to your advantage. That's hard to understand. He says, because I'm going to give you my spirit. Why does he give us his Holy Spirit? To give us new life so that we have his eyes, so that we have his heart, so that we're his hands and feet, so that we're the ambassadors of Christ, so that we have the ministry of reconciliation given to us. So this is what it is then to be Christians, to respond to what God has done for us in Christ with love, gratitude, and the deepest sense of devotion imaginable. And the second thing that I see in the text is why. Why do we follow Jesus? Why do we give our lives to the one who gave his life to us? You know, the text doesn't go this far, but if you could just go with me for just a moment, and let's just say for just a moment that the story continued. Can you imagine our, our, our character, our guy, our half-dead guy? <laughs> Can you imagine him waking up at, at the inn and, and, and like the last thing he remembered, the lights were going out. He knew he shouldn't have been on the path of blood. His wife told him not to go, but he did anyway. And they were kicking, and, and then the lights went. He just thought, I'm dead. Lights went out. And he wakes up, and he's bandaged with some other man's clothes, and all his wounds are tended. And there's a man waiting on him, hand and foot, no expense spared. Can you imagine him saying, innkeeper, innkeeper? The innkeeper comes rushing, yeah, what, what is it, what is it? What has happened to me? What do you mean? Well, I, I mean, how did I get here? I, I was on the path of blood, and then I was, I was dead. And now I'm alive. Can you imagine what the innkeeper said? Yeah, man, there's a guy. He, he gave of everything he had to save your life. Where is this guy? Well, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? Well, he, he paid for your life, and then he went away but he said he's coming back. When's he coming back? That I can't tell you, but I suspect it'll be soon. You know what you're thinking right now? If you're the man laying in the inn, you're thinking, how in the world do I ever thank the one who has saved my life? I got till now, until the day I see him to figure that out. And the words of Christ are meant to echo into your ear right here. Go and do likewise. I don't know what you came to SMC thinking Christianity was. It's not some list of do's and don'ts. It's not measured in morality or church attendance. It is a response to the rescue mission God has taken on for your life. And in that rescue mission, when he resurrects your spiritually dead bones and puts the life of God inside of you and gives you eyes to see in color. He changes your mind and he changes your heart and he changes your will and he changes your affections. And your desires are now for him. And your desires are to love others, 
the way that he first loved you. It's the only response that makes sense when you're saved from your sin. I went around third and head home with this. Uh, one of my mentors sent me a clip. When he sends me something, I, I always pay attention to watch it. Um, and he sent me a clip, and he said, this was extremely powerful. Watch this, and, and I did. In and, and this clip, it's, it's a, a preacher who's pretty well-known. You may have heard of him. If not, I'd love to turn you on to him. His name is Dr. Alistair Begg. And um, it was a clip. Uh, he's got this cool English accent. I'm not going to try to talk like that because I can't. But he was, um, he was talking in a, in a sermon he gave. And uh, it was, it was uh, well, I'll, I'll say this. He, he, let me try to say what he said. The clip unfolded, and he said, uh, we'd better be preaching the gospel to ourselves every single day. He says, because we always want to be the hero of our own story. We always want to slide back towards self-righteousness and works righteousness. And if we're not careful... We always think in terms of how we've justified ourselves, And, of course, this is just what we've seen in our story, which is not the gospel. And so you got to be careful. He said, in other words, if you ask the age-old question, hey, if you were to get to heaven's gates and there's an angel there that said, why should we let you in? If your response even begins with the word I, because I did this or I did that or I believed in him. He said, the moment you begin with I, you've already missed the gospel. When you understand the gospel, your first word is he, because he rescued me, because he redeemed me, because he resurrected me and gave me new life. He said the tendency is to to slide towards this desire to justify ourselves. It's it's the anti-gospel. And he said, just think of the thief on the cross, the one who died on one of the crosses next to Jesus. He said, I mean, can you, can you believe this guy, Alistair Beck, said, I can't wait to find this guy in heaven. I can't wait to find him and, and just go up to him and say, I, I, can you believe your story? I mean, just to commiserate, like you were on the cross with your buddy next to him, and y'all were hurling insults at him, like you were cussing him out one minute, and, and then like in the next minute, you're here. Like you had never been a part of a Bible study, you had never been baptized, you have no involvement in a church, no church membership, and yet you made it. Like, can you believe it? You made it. And uh, he said, imagine what it was like when that guy showed up at heaven's gates, hypothetically, and the angel said to him, all right, what are you doing here? Thief on the cross, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? I have no idea. Well, you you got to know something. No, nothing, nothing. Hold on, let me get my supervisor. He goes off. Gabriel, hey, somebody, archangel comes. All right, let's get to the bottom of this. Have you accepted salvation on the basis of the doctrine of justification? Thief on the cross. I have no idea what you're talking about. What about the doctrine of the scriptures? And the archangel, growing in frustration, says, Well, then on what basis are you here? And he says, the man on the middle cross told me I could come. That's the gospel. Listen to me. The man on the middle cross says, come. 
And it's not just this Matthew 11. It is, but it's not just this anybody who's weary, come and find rest in me. It's to you. It's to you. Insert your name. The man on the middle cross says, come. Come. Uh, I don't know how God's working in your heart tonight. I don't know how he's been working in your heart this morning all day. But I can't quit thinking about something. Being in Ephesians 2 earlier and being in this parable tonight, I can't quit thinking about when Jesus Christ lost his best friend. Best buddy Lazarus died. Dead and buried three days. And when Jesus shows up, do you remember this scene? Vivid scene. They don't want to take the stone. You roll the stone away. They're like, hey, it's going to stink. It's been dead in there two full days now. And he says, roll it away. And then he, <laughs> he says, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus is dead. But the author of life told him to get up and to come out. And here comes Lazarus. And Jesus says, take off his grave clothes, set him free. Like, I can't save anybody. But the one who came, the one who died, the one who rose, the author of life. I just want to say this. If he's calling your name, and he's saying to you, stand up, come out. There's good news. Because the author of life is about to make you a brand new creation. And he's going to put himself in you. And you're going to receive what he accomplished when he rose from the dead. Would y'all bow your heads with me? I'm, I'm, I'm going to do it this way. I'm literally going to say, if you've never trusted on Christ, but somewhere over the last 36 hours, the living God has been whispering your name. Not only you know that, only he knows that. But if he's been calling your name, come out. Stand up, come out. I want to invite you to stand up. I want to invite you to stand up. It's symbolic. Stand up. Step out of your grave clothes. Because the living God wants to set you free. I know it's Sometimes it's hard to stand up in a place like this, in a context like this. I want to tell you, 
As I said this morning, there's a day we'll all stand before God. And that day the accuser hurls his accusations at us. I left you there this morning, but I'll tell you right now, there's an advocate. If you've trusted on Christ in that day, though your mouth and my mouth will be shut, he will shut the mouth of the accuser. And in that day, he will say, that's enough. This one's mine. Not based on my righteousness, based on his righteousness, which was given to me the day that I trusted on him. The guys that you came with to SMC, the guys sitting next to you now, they won't be with you that day, but he will. So I want to invite you, if you've never trusted Christ and he's calling your name, stand up. Come out. Shake off the grave clothes. Christ has come to set you free. The man on the middle cross says, Come. God, it says in your word that your sheep know your voice. Lord, I can only see so far, but I see some that are standing. And I see those who have heard the voice of the good shepherd. And Lord, there's no holier moment in our life on the scale of eternity than the moment when you call our name and you awaken us to life and everything goes into color. And you are faithful to save those who you call. And those who you call, we're assured they'll come. So God, even now, just speak the names of your children. Speak the names of your children. Stir their hearts. an irresistible way call them to come out take off the grave clothes be set free Holy Spirit move in this place bring a harvest souls for your kingdom And for those that stand and those that are standing, Lord, I pray that they might know this very moment, the life, the resurrected life of Christ. Lord, I pray that in this moment, they would know the glory of the gospel. They would know the delight of your presence. That would be the gift by grace through faith given to them your very presence. Fill them with your Holy Spirit. Make them alive in Christ that their forever banner will be love, your love over them. We 
love you, Jesus. It's in your name I pray.